0: Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome. Super Bowl Sunday. Um, You know, the NFL season, in a way, ends tonight, and in a way, it begins, or at least it feels like it begins in April at the NFL Draft. The NFL Draft is when all the teams get to choose players that are graduating from college and entering into the NFL, and they get to pick the ones that they want, and uh, it's a big event. Uh, Two years ago, in 2022, the NFL Draft uh, produced a lot of different players, of course, but every year there's a player who is chosen last, and there's a nickname for the person who is chosen last in the NFL Draft, and the nickname is Mr. Irrelevant. It's not the kindest nickname, but it's Mr. Irrelevant is the 262nd pick of the NFL Draft. 261 players were chosen before this guy, and two years ago, Mr. Irrelevant was a guy named Brock Purdy. Uh, tonight Brock Purdy will quarterback the San Francisco 49ers against the Kansas City Chiefs. In just two years he's gone from being Mr. Irrelevant to on the verge of being a Super Bowl winning quarterback. It's remarkable. It's an amazing story of transformation and as a society, we love stories of transformation. We love it, the rags to riches stories. And as we are getting near the end of our series through the book of Habakkuk, what we're going to see is that this is really a story of transformation. Habakkuk was a prophet who came to God with a complaint. And he said to God, hey, there's a lot of people doing a lot of bad things, and where are you, and why aren't you paying attention? And God says, I am paying attention, and I have a plan. And he tells Habakkuk his plan, and Habakkuk says, I don't like your plan. Let's come up with plan B. And God comes back to Habakkuk and says, you're just going to have to trust me. Trust me. Trust my ways and trust my timing. And, and here in Habakkuk 3, Habakkuk, in a way, gets the final word in this conversation, and it's in the form of a prayer. And what we're going to see is that Habakkuk, from the beginning of this book to the end of this short book, he is transformed. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1 says this, this prayer was sung by the prophet Habakkuk. Here's his prayer. God, I have heard all about you. Lord, I am filled with awe by your amazing works. In this time of our deep need, some of you this morning, you might find yourself in a time of deep need. In this time of deep need, help us again as you did in years gone by. And in your anger, remember your mercy. And at the end of this prayer, verse 16, he says, I trembled inside when I heard this. My lips quivered with fear. My legs gave way beneath me and I shook in terror. I will wait quietly for the coming day when disaster will strike the people who invade us. Trinity, at Trinity, our vision is to see gospel transformation in every area of our lives and in every life in our area. Gospel transformation, radical life change because of Jesus, who he is and what he's done. In every area of our lives, God do it in us first, but it doesn't just end with us but that God might change the lives of people in our lives, every life in our area. And we define that word area as anywhere where God gives you influence and reach. And relationship. So for some of you, it's the school that you attend. For some of you, it's the place that you work. For others, it's your, it's your neighborhood, it's your families. But wherever you have reach and influence and relationship, our vision as a church is that there would be gospel transformation, not just in us, but in the lives of people around us. How many of you would say, I would love to see change in my life, but also in the lives of people around me? Anyone know someone that you love and that you've been praying for and that you're caring about and you're saying, God, change their life. It's, it's transformation that we're looking for. For, And as we look at this passage this morning, the question I want us to consider is, how do you know you're being transformed? What does a transformed life look like? What are some of the behaviors of somebody who has experienced and is experiencing gospel transformation? And we're going to see three things from the life of Habakkuk. And the first one is this. If you are being transformed by the gospel, number one, then you run to God. You run to God. Now, Habakkuk doesn't get everything right in this book. He, he has some issues, he has some complaints, and he has some misunderstandings about God. Anyone else feel like that's you sometimes? You got issues, <laughs> you got complaints, and you have some misunderstandings about God. But what Habakkuk does get right is that he keeps running to God. Listen, if we're being transformed by the gospel, then when when we come face-to-face with our issues, our complaints, and our misunderstandings about God, we learn to bring them to God. We run to him with our issues, our complaints, and our misunderstandings. There are many ways to run from God. Some of you have you got a lifetime of experience in this. (laughs) Many ways to run from God. Many of us could raise our hands and say, there's a lot of different ways that I have run from God, but the main way that we run to God is through the gift and avenue of prayer. That God gives us access to himself so that we can come to him and we can pray. And a people who are being transformed by the gospel will always be, listen, will always be a people who are praying. You want to know where you're at in your relationship with Jesus? Where is your prayer life? Are you a praying person? Are you a person who runs to God before you even run to others, who runs to God before you run to other solutions, who runs to God before you run to the things that distract you or give you pleasure or give you comfort or give you the feeling of control? Where do you run to? Because wherever you run to, that's ultimately who you pray to. I want to just share with us three tips, if I can call them tips, I don't love that word, three uh, pieces of advice on how we might pray. And the first thing is this, keep it simple. Keep it simple. We're amazing at making things unnecessarily complex. Um, That's how I feel when I try to help my daughters with math now, by the way. I'm like, who made this so hard? (laughs) Like, why did this have to be so complex? Can't we just memorize facts? And I know there's a lot of good reasons why they do it the way they do it, but to me it doesn't make, of course, any sense. There's this thing actually called the complexity bias. And the complexity bias is that as humans, we tend to believe that the best solution is the most complex solution. And yet, it's usually one of the simplest solutions that's the best solution. Sometimes when we think about prayer, we make it more complex than it needs to be. We make it really intimidating. We think only super spiritual people pray. Only really pious people pray. Only people that have been going to church their whole lives and took classes on prayer and and have studied prayer, memorized prayer. Listen, when it comes to prayer, friends, everyone's a beginner. Everyone's a beginner. We're all coming to God from a place of need. And prayer at its core is simply a conversation initiated by God that we respond to. And so prayer is not complex. It's not confusing. It's not just for the special elite Christian forces. <laughs> prayer is for everyone. The child can pray. The unbeliever can call out to God. The newest believer, this, you could be, feel very new in your faith and yet you can pray. It's not complex. Keep it simple. Secondly, keep it real. Be you. You don't have to sound like someone else. I've talked to people who have said, man, I heard other people pray, and and I don't know if I can pray like them. And I said, that's okay because you're not them. Pray like you. Man, I heard that person pray, and they were using words I can't even pronounce. I mean, it was incredible. The, The building was shaking when that person was praying. I was, like, thinking Jesus was coming back. Like, this person can pray up a storm, and I can't pray like that. It's okay. Pray like you. Just keep it real. One of the things I love about the prayers in the Bible is how honest they are and how raw they are. Habakkuk doesn't come to God and say, uh, oh, dearest God, I love you so much. I got this tiny little thing. Forgive me for having this tiny little issue with you. I love you more than anybody. Habakkuk's just like, God, what's up? <laughs> what are you doing? Where are you at? And how many of you can relate to that? That's an okay way to pray, to come to him and to keep it real. Listen, you don't have to, clean yourself up to come to God. Some people are like, I will pray uh, when I get it right, when I'm living right, when I'm living holy, when I have a really good Jesus day, then I will pray. You don't have to clean yourself up to pray. Why? Because your access to God in prayer is not based on your goodness. It's based on the never-changing, undeserved goodness of Jesus that has been provided for you by his life, his death, and his resurrection. And so you don't have to clean yourself up to pray. You just have to trust in Jesus. Pray in his name and come based on his goodness, not your own. You don't have to clean yourself up. Secondly, you don't have to work yourself up. Sometimes people think, I gotta get myself amped. I gotta roll up my sleeves. I gotta get loud. I gotta yell. I gotta do something super impressive. You don't have to work yourself up. Why? Because God's answer to your prayer is not based on the amount of energy and passion that you can muster up. It's not. Actually, in 1 Kings 18, that's how the prophets of Baal prayed. That's how heathens pray. That's how people who don't understand God's goodness pray. They think, if I'm super loud, if I have a lot of energy, if I jump around, now listen. Sometimes people are loud when they pray, and that's okay, too. I'm not saying it's wrong to be loud when you pray, but don't believe you got to be loud, or you have to have a lot of energy, or you have to be screaming. You don't have to do any of that because God's answer is not based on the energy that you can muster up in prayer. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to work yourself up to pray. And also, you don't have to use up all your words when you pray. It can be a simple, short prayer because God's attention to you is not based on the duration of your prayer. We don't pray longer and all of a sudden God's like, they just passed the five-minute mark. Now, now I will listen. Actually, Jesus, interestingly enough, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, says that's the way that the Gentiles pray. They think that they will be heard because of all their words. And they think more words equals a more powerful prayer. Sometimes you got a lot to say, say it all. We do have to endure in prayer. We do have to persevere in prayer. We should pray for periods of time, not just seconds here and there. I believe that also. However, don't believe for a second that, you're, that somehow God will start paying attention to you because of how long you are praying. Some of the simplest prayers are just, Jesus, save me. Amen. God, help me. You're walking in a difficult meeting at work. God, protect my heart. You know, those, are, those prayers are powerful because you're keeping it simple and you're keeping it real. And then the third tip I want to give you on prayer is this, keep it up, keep it up. Keep doing it, stick with it. The only way to get better at praying is to pray. There's no other way. Keep praying. Prayer is necessary. It's a necessary act for our souls and our spirits. Here's why. Because prayer is a powerful way of reminding yourself the answers I need are not inside me. So i got to look up. i got to go to God. And prayer is this way of saying, God, I depend on you for everything. I need you for my daily bread. I need you for the forgiveness of my sins. I need you so that I will not be led into temptation. And so keep it up. Keep praying because prayer is less about an act of religious um, faithfulness. It is more about positioning our hearts to say, God, I need you. And so I come to you and I approach you. Keep it up. Don't stop praying. Keep praying. Prayer is an act of obedience. It's a way of doing what God has invited us and asked us to do. Prayer is an an invitation from God to join in with what he's doing. We don't pray so much to get God to do what we want. We pray more to get a sense of what God is already doing in this world to see his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And then we say, God, direct me in that path. Help me to walk in that because prayer is partnership. But I also want to say this about prayer. It's not easy. It's not easy, is it? It's not easy. It's hard work. That's why it's called a spiritual discipline. you got to discipline yourself. Why? Part of the reason is because we have these things all the time. So how do we focus in prayer? How do we turn to God when we have these things buzzing in our pockets all day long? It takes work. It takes discipline. It takes effort. But last week we talked about how one of the great lies of sin is that if it's costly, then it's not for me. But yet the things that are actually going to shape us the most are the things that are going to cost us the most. Keep it up. And and finally, don't just keep it up on your own. It's good to have personal prayer time, private prayer time. The Bible talks about having a prayer closet. It's a metaphor for sort of getting alone, being with God. That prayer closet could be in your car driving to work. It could be in the shower. It could be a lot of different places. If If you're a parent at home with six kids, it's just the 20 seconds you get in the bathroom to yourself, right? But whatever that is, that's good. But prayer is not just about you alone with God. Prayer is something that we're supposed to do together. Keep it up together. Keep it keep it uh, in, in front of us. And, and that's why we had, like last month, we had this week of prayer. And it was this invitation to say, hey, we need to pray not just alone, but we need to pray together. I asked some of the people who came to the week of prayer to give me some feedback on what they got out of it. Here's some of the things that they sent me. One person said, our week of prayer was such a blessing to my heart because we were able to encourage one another as a church family. You can't do that praying alone at home. There's a lot you can do praying alone at home, but you cannot encourage other people with your prayers if you're praying alone. One person said, a week of prayer gave me a chance to be still in God's presence. Prayer week took me out of my comfort zone. I appreciated the thoughts and prayers of others. It helped me to be more aware of how to pray for other people's needs and not just my own. You can't do that for yourself. You need each other for that. Another person said, this past week showed me that my prayers are very similar to the prayers of others, which shows me that my concerns, troubles, and cares are the same as other people in this church. And what it showed me, this person said, I am not alone in feeling the way that I do. You can't get that on your own. We have to be together. This person said, we were blessed to attend every night. Wednesday was a night of transformation. You could tangibly feel the power of God in the sanctuary as we prayed together. Each night was a beautiful blessing. See, keep it simple. Keep it real. Keep it up. But also, you know, I didn't put this on the slide, but keep it together. Let's do this together. Let's pray together. Let's gather together. If I had a tree in my hand right now, right, not rooted in, and I said, is this a tree? You would say, yes, that's a tree. And if I said, well, I want to plant it. And the tree says, I don't need to be planted to be a tree. I'm already a tree. I don't need to have my roots in soil. I don't need to have access to water. I don't need to have access to sun. I am a tree whether I have that or not. i say, yeah, you are a tree, but here's the problem. You're not going to grow. You're not going to bear fruit. And you're not going to survive very long. And that's also true of Christians who say, I'm a Christian, so I don't need other Christians. I'm a Christian, so I don't need a community of people. I'm a Christian. I don't need to go to a thing like a week of prayer because I pray on my own. Is that true? It's true. However, I'm just letting you know there's going to be significant challenge to your growth, to your ability to bear fruit, and to your survival. Because community is not just about people in a room. It's about an atmosphere, and environment in which we grow. So we run to God together. Second thing. Uh, when we think about a transformed life is this, we remember what God has done. Last week I was here at the church and Al Rhodes who's uh, one of our head ushers stopped by and we were talking about, we used to have a church softball team years ago, a church softball team, and we were talking about playing church softball and if you're my age and at my stage of life, all of your athletic glory days are behind you. <laughs> but I remember them. I remember those big moments. I, I still, and so we were talking and it's like reliving the glory days, but they're never happening again. Trust me, I can barely get out of bed without pulling my calf. Like I'm not playing softball anymore. Those things are behind me. But when we remember what God has done, listen, those things are not just behind us. Those are things that he still does. (laughs) God's not run out of miracles, God's not running out of power. God's not running out of a heart to save people and rescue people and set people free and deliver people. When we remember what God has done, we know that he does it still, and he will do it again. And the rest of this chapter, verses 3 through 15, I'm not going to read it to you. You can read it later if you'd like. But what Habakkuk does is he recounts, he remembers, now he wasn't there, but he's heard the stories of everything that God did for Israel, getting them out of Egypt, the exodus, the plagues that God sent upon the Egyptians to set Israel free out of 400 years of slavery. He talks about the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea and the sea falling back on Pharaoh and his army. He talks about the victories that God gave to Israel where he fought for them and the time where God actually had the sun stand still in the sky so that Israel could finish winning a battle. He talks about taking the promised land, what he's teaching us here is that a transformed life, if you're transformed by the gospel, you are remembering and reminding yourself and rehearsing what God has done, what he's done. There's a story in 1 Samuel chapter 30 where David, this is David before he's King David, he's on the run for his life. King Saul wants to kill him. And David has a group of men and they're battling other people. And David, lead his, David leads his men to go fight some enemies. And they go and they fight, and they're victorious, and then they come back, and when they get back to their camp, they realize that while they were gone, a different enemy had come and and captured all of their wives and children. So they come back to this camp, and everyone that they love is gone. It's a terrible day, and then things go from bad to worse because, you know, when things go bad, human nature is we got to find someone to blame, Right? And so the men turn on David. His best friends turn on him. Those who were following him say to each other, this is David's fault and we should kill him because we've lost our wives and our children. Now, that's a bad day. David's lost his wives, he's lost his children, and the men that serve him and follow him are now talking about killing him. And it actually says that David wept until he had no more strength left to weep. Have you been there? Wept, 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 no strength left to weep. He has got no strength But then two verses later, in 1 Samuel 36, there's this little phrase, and it says this, but David strengthened himself in the Lord. David strengthened himself in the Lord. And I read that verse, and I think, what does that look like? On the worst day of your life, when you have no more strength, not even the strength to cry, Where does that strength come from? And what that is, is David, I'm sure, is remembering the faithfulness of God, the God who went before him when he fought Goliath, the God who had freed him from the murderous hand of Saul many times, the God who had provided his needs. David is lying there with no strength in him, and he begins in his heart to say, Don't forget who your God is. Don't forget what your God has done. And transform people. The way that you fight through the worst day of your life is you don't look inside yourself for strength. You remind yourself of who God is and what he has done. It's called preaching the gospel to yourself. And Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century preacher, said, the most important daily habit that any Christian has is to preach the gospel to themselves. This morning during our 8.30 huddle where we pray together as a team for the services, Pastor Jeremiah shared this quote that he heard this week in a sermon by Pastor John Tyson, a pastor in Manhattan, and this is the quote that jumped out at me. He said this, and this is a good thing to remind ourselves of. Listen, every morning I wake up into a world I did not create, into a love I did not earn, into a Savior's death that I do not deserve to have credited to my accounts, and into a world where Jesus rose from the dead, and anything is possible, and this God likes me. That's the world that you and I woke up into this morning. It's the world you and I will wake up into tomorrow morning, no matter what happens. Kansas City wins. San Francisco wins, no matter what happens. I don't care. Tomorrow, we'll wake up in a world where God is faithful He saved you. You didn't deserve it. He found you. He rescued you. He's keeping you until the very end. And he doesn't just love you. He likes you. He likes you. And we remind ourselves of that. And then lastly, this morning, as Pastor Antonia joins me, people who are transformed, they run to God. They remember what God has done. And this is a big one. Listen, they believe he can do it again. (laughs) They believe he can do it again. We read these stories in the Bible and we hear about things that have happened in the past. Sometimes we think, well, that was good for them, and that was good for them. But he can do those things again. This is, this is my favorite part of Habakkuk's prayer. Habakkuk says, I, I've heard of you, God. I've heard of you, past tense. But now I stand in awe of your deeds. And then he prays this prayer. Lord, renew it in my day. What you did, what we read about in the book of Acts, do it in clay. Do it at Trinity. Do it in our lives where the Holy Spirit is poured out in such a way that the church is growing and Jesus is adding people to the church day after day and and the church is loving one another and laying their lives down for each other and breaking bread together and people are getting healed and people are getting touched and lives are being changed. Jesus, you can do it again because he's a God who what he did, he can do again. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is faith. And it's not faith in what the world has to offer because what the world has to offer, we learned last week, it cannot provide it's not faith in what I have to offer because I'm not my own hero. I'm not the hero of my own story. We love to create a narrative in our lives where we are the hero of our own story, yet to follow Jesus is to reject that narrative and to say I could never have saved myself, give me a thousand lifetimes to try to live right, and I would have got it terribly wrong every single time. So the faith is not in me. Listen, the faith is not even in my faith faith is not in my faith, is what I mean. We're not healed because of the amount of our faith. We're healed because of the object of our faith. We're not delivered because of the amount of our faith. We can be delivered because of the object of our faith. We are not saved because of the amount of faith that we can muster up. We are saved because of the object of our faith. A little bit of faith in the right thing is infinitely more valuable than all the faith in the world in the wrong thing. And what that means is there are people out there who have a lot more faith in things than you have in Jesus. But if you have just a little bit of faith in Jesus, it's infinitely more valuable. Our faith is in Jesus. And what do we know about Jesus? Well, the last thing that Habakkuk says in verse two is this prayer. He says, God, in your wrath, remember mercy. In your wrath, remember mercy. It's a weird combination. It's a weird coupling. Wrath and mercy seem like absolute opposites. What, do they, what are they doing here together? And as we continue to read through Scripture and we come to the Gospels and we study the life of Christ and we come to the cross, we realize this, that at the cross of Jesus Christ, the wrath of God and the mercy of God are both fully displayed. At the cross of Jesus, the wrath of God, his wrath, not the way you and I get angry, but his wrath against sin and what sin was doing to his loving creation. His wrath against the way sin was destroying us. His wrath against that and his mercy collided at the cross. And here's the miracle of the gospel. Jesus took the wrath so that you and I could have the mercy. He took the wrath so that we could have the mercy. And when we understand that and believe that and receive that, do you know what the result is? Transformation. Our hearts are changed. Our lives are changed. We begin to believe in God's truth. Let's pray together this morning.